We are God's image bearers, reflecting Him on this earth. We are all God's image bearers, created in His likeness to worship Him. Our neighbor bears His image, even when we can't detect a single attribute. Every child bears His image, even when they have no knowledge of Him. Yes, His mercy is offered to the ones we don't relate to, though we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We are justified freely through Christ's sacrifice if we accept it. Even so, we each remain image bearers of the living God, whether now redeemed or still lost. Because the one who gives life, who breathes it into us, who is life itself, created every one of us. So we must preserve it, even though we don't always understand. Even when their life looks different than ours, this is the life that God cares for. This is the life that God asks us to guard. It is fragile, needy, messy, and vulnerable, but it has been made beautiful from dust glimmering in His eyes like starlight. We are charged with cultivating all of it. So in humble gratitude for our own life, we honor God, share the good news, and preserve life all life, for there are no ordinary, outcast, unimportant people, not unlike us when we were found. There are only His image bearers. What a great message in that short video. I was really hoping that we might be able to introduce someone that's new to our congregation this morning, but I don't see that they're here. They weren't here last week. Um, Two weeks ago on Friday, January 4th at 12.13 a.m., Amelia Lee Miller was born to McKenna and Skylar Miller. Um, Only in Goshen County would a child born on January 4th be the New Year's baby. Um, but uh, congratulations to them, and when they finally venture out with Amelia Lee, we will, uh, we will celebrate her joining us. Um, today, as you can see by the announcement and by the, the title, uh, today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And um, of course, every day of our life should be Sanctity Life Day, And we've been seeing that through the last couple weeks as we've been sort of focusing in and honing in on the fact that we have been created, that all people have been created in the image of God, that God does the creating, that God breathes his life and breathes his life in, into us. Uh, what, what does the sanctity of life mean? Well, the definition of sanctity is the ultimate importance and sacredness, something and something that is sacred, is entitled to reverence and respect or to be highly valued. We are to highly value human life. Now, we often tend to focus on abortion only on this day, on Sanctity of Life Sunday. That's sort of the focus uh, of that, and that's the group that that talks about it and gets it out there for us to be reminded of. And, And that, of course, is a major concern and a tragic black mark on our nation and the world uh, all over, but, but it concerns life. 
And, and we must also include subjects like euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide as we think about the sanctity of life. They all speak to the fact that as a nation and as a human race in general, all across the planet, we are progressively losing the value of human life. And we must battle against that view, against that trend uh, while serving as a hospital chaplain, a pastor read President Reagan's book. I didn't even know he wrote one um, with this title. It was titled Abortion and the Conscience of the Nation. And President Reagan begins by observing that we live at a time when some people do not value all human life. And for those of you who are younger in here, um, Ronald Reagan was one of the presidents of the United States back in the last century in, when I was in school, high school. Um, he was an actor. You're right. He was. And uh, one of, you know, one of our great presidents. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at two important points for having a clear vision in the year 2024. Who can tell me what those two points were? Anyone? We reviewed it last week. Look to Jesus. You may be saying it. I just can't hear you. Look to Jesus. That was the two points two weeks ago. We must, Jesus must be our vision. He, he, we must hold him high and be looking to him. Uh, Jesus is the one to whom we cling to in all circumstances, both good and bad. It, it is in a relationship with Jesus where we find and will find the true who we are, the true who he has created us to be. Jesus created all things and that includes you. John 1.1, 1, 1, I want to repeat it. In the beginning was the Word, speaking about Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus, and the Word, Jesus, was with God. And Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, through him, Jesus, all things were made. Nothing, without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Jesus was the Word, Jesus is God. He has always been and will always be in all things were made through him. Anything that is was made by him. Nothing that was made was made without him. And, and that, of course, includes you. Literally, he formed you. He fashioned you. He molded you. He shaped you. Um, you are his masterpiece. And I know in some ways you're thinking, there is no way that I could be somebody's masterpiece. That is the enemy speaking to you because it's not true. You are his masterpiece. He intentionally put certain things together to make you. He formed you. He crafted you. He knit you. David in Psalm 139, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I, I praise you because because I am fearfully and wonderfully made, your works are wonderful, and I know that full well, and you are his work. You are his work. King David testifies to this. He created you, he fashioned you, and he did those by making you in his image. We looked at that extensively last week, but, but not just you, and, and not just those who are children of God right now at this moment, but everyone. Everyone on the planet Earth bears, every human being bears the image of God. They have been created in his 
image. There is no greater argument or reason to recognize that all people conceived, unborn, infant, child, adult, aged, mentally disabled, and elderly all have great value. Every human being because of whose image we bear. And we all bear the image of God. We have all been made in his likeness, mentally, morally, socially, and we have been given power by him over the earth. Genesis 1, 26 through 27 describes that. King David highlighted the value of life, didn't he? We read them already. We read them already, and they are our memory verses this day, Psalm 139, and I will refer to that here again in a moment. So let's Let's memorize those two verses. Let's, let's learn those and recognize that those apply to us individually and to every other person we will ever come into contact with or see. They have been created in the image of God. He created them. God made each and every one of you. He formed and fashioned you, and, and he formed and is fashioning those just conceived on planet earth, the unborn, the infant, the child, the foster child, the adult, the aged, the mentally disabled, and the elderly. In Matthew 24, we see one of the signs of the end of the age, and we see it in our world today, and it's verse 12, Matthew 24, 12, it should be up on the screen. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. What happens when we lose love for other people? We, we don't value them, and when we don't value them, they become a thing or an object to be used or abused. And then we have no conscience when it comes to ending their life or even maybe our own. Today, that wickedness is pushing us toward an ever-increasing devaluation of human life. May that not be. May we not go there. As followers of Jesus, as children of God, we all need to realize that the, we all need to realize the impact that Jesus had on this earth. Um, in society in general, when, before Jesus came, uh, we refer to, to uh, the value, the vowing of human life as a, a moral or an ideal that was given to us by, by Judeo-Christianity. When Jesus hit the earth, he said, look, all people need to be valued. In the culture that he entered into, women were not valued. He blew the doors off of that. He blew the doors off of so many things. And, and Jesus' presence on the earth was a huge stepping stone of change. And we need to not let that change go in reverse and go the other direction. We need to keep pushing that value of life change into the future. We must never forget that all human beings have been created by God and have been given by God certain rights and responsibilities and worth. Now, when we talk about the sanctity of life out in the public square. Um, we need to be careful not to not be distracted by peripheral issues. Okay, so in the in the public arena, we can debate we can debate sexual purity, uh, sexual sin. We can debate pro life. We can we can we can debate abortion. We can discuss euthanasia and prolonging life through life support. We can discuss all of those things. We can debate the morality of physician-assisted suicide, but what must inform all of those conversations is what does God say about the sanctity of life? What does God say? Because it's not a question of what I think or feel. 
It's not a question of what you think or feel. It's what does God say? And, and, you know, what does, how does God feel about, and I, as I wrote those words down, I thought, does God, I mean, because feeling, we, we struggle with feelings because they change, but God doesn't. I mean, and anyway, it's not a question of what we prefer or don't like or what is more convenient for us. God sets the bar for the value of life and the worth of life. There was a baseball game and the bases were loaded and a player, player hit a ball and, and it went deep out into the outfield and the runners are running the bases and the, the guy that was on second base, um, you know, he, he rounds third and he's headed towards home plate and the throw from the outfield comes in, the catcher catches it and there's this huge collision at, at uh, home plate and uh, the, the, the runner's team is yelling, he's safe, he's safe, he's safe and the other team's yelling, he's out, he's out, he's out. And the, uh, the umpire looks at both teams and he says, he ain't nothing till I call him. <laughs> and whatever the umpire calls, he will be right. That will be what it is. Now we all know umpires and referees can make mistakes, but God can't. And whatever God calls it, that's what it is. And we need to remember that. So at the crux of the issue is not how I feel about life, but how does God feel? What does God think? What does God say about life? I want to I go over six truths this morning that, that God shows us in his word that should inform all of our decisions and the priorities that we have in our life, that, that should, should inform how we live and how we treat people. You know, what organizations we support, what financially and with prayer and, and what involvement and what we volunteer for and all of that. So first of all, this morning, and this has been impressed on us for several Sundays now, I know God established the value of human life. He made it. God created us to reflect his glory. We bear his image. And even though many times it is a poor, poor reflection, we are Jesus with skin on. We are what other people see, and there is no other created creature on the planet that is the living image of God, as human beings are. We can point people to God's majesty on the earth by, by living who we are in Christ. The theory of evolution is a tool that our enemy uses every day to reduce the value of man. If Satan can convince people that they just happen to come into existence with no intention or creator, then it's easy to draw the conclusion that we are no different than the animals. Because we just came to be just like they did. In fact, you know, we were one of them at one time. No. God didn't make humans because he thought he blew it with the monkeys. That's not what happened. We are at the top of God's creation. We have his very breath. He breathed life into us and into you. He created intentionally and with amazing intricacies. Just, just the life systems in our body are unreal. It's just crazy to me. No invention of man can even come close to the systems that God created in us. And that stuff just doesn't happen. There aren't enough years that could even, it's just silly. 
I mean, it really is. Go into a teenager's room and you can see that given enough time, things don't go from a state of disorder to order. They always go the other direction. Unless there is a creator who created. And our God did. And the fact that the all-powerful being created everything that has been created and that he himself came to this very place, that Jesus gave up heaven to come to this earth to do the only thing that could be done to save us from ourselves. To reconcile us to God, Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary so as not to be born with original sin. We're going to talk about that in a second. Perfect, sinless. Jesus taught and lived among us so that we might understand what we was doing. And then Jesus surrendered himself to death on a cross for you and for me. What value does your life have if the creator of the universe did the one thing that it could take, the only thing that could, he could do, and that was to sacrifice himself? Three and a half weeks until Ash Wednesday. We're 10 Sundays from Resurrection Sunday when we celebrate what Jesus did, when we remember, when we worship him on that Sunday, as we should every Sunday, when we celebrate the sacrifice of the perfect for the imperfect, what love that is. What incredible love, what value and worth that puts on your life and on mine and all others. All of them. All of them. God established the value of human life, a second truth that informs the value Uh, that we must have of human life is that human life begins at conception. It begins at conception. David affirmed that in Psalm 139. God's work in David's life started when he was in his mother's womb. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. One of the debates that often takes place concerning abortion is is when does that become a human being? Because if if you know, because if we can somehow justify that it's not, then then you know, ending it is not a big deal. When does an embryo become a human being? Now, if I may get a little biological for just a moment. The undeniable fact is that if the embryo of William Shakespeare had ever been destroyed, then William Shakespeare would never have lived. Sperm and ova that do not meet simply die. No human life exists, but once they do meet and fertilization takes place, a new and unique human life has begun. Now, no, hear me out, no new genetic material is added after the point of fertilization. It has everything it needs. It is all human, 100%. 
None. And then just after 14 days, even a rudimentary nervous system is present. 14 days. Human life begins at conception. God established the value of human life. Human life begins at conception. And the third truth is that even imperfect people are God's children. Now, I don't mean that, I'm not talking about that spiritually because we are, obviously we're all imperfect people. Um, Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That makes us imperfect spiritually. That places us in the, in the place where we need a savior. Um, advances, I, I'm, this point is speaking physically. I had a pastor, one, a youth pastor, fellow youth pastor one time said that he heard a sermon by a guy one time that said that if, if, you, were, if you were missing any, any parts and and this particular youth pastor was missing most of his leg because of a, um, a lawn mowing accident when he was a, a child. He got the impression from this sermon that he was somehow short of, of God's ultimate and perfect creation as a human being because he was missing part of his leg. And I'm like, well, dude, I mean, I've been missing these fingers since I was four, so does that? No, and, and, and sometimes people can think that way. Sometimes people can think that way. We have incredible advances in medical science that enable us to see physical imperfections of a child, even in the womb. And there have been times, depending on the, what the issue is, where they have gone in and fixed something physically in a child in its mother's womb before they're even born. Blows me away what kind of science technology we have these days. I mean, we have a, a young man in our room here who has somebody else's kidney that is now his. And that is an amazing miracle. And there, there, medical science and technology can only do what it can do. God does the rest. And there's plenty that God does in the midst of that technology. Okay, but, but having an imperfect body, what we look like physically, does not affect our worth before God. It does not What we look like physically does not affect that. Now, I didn't research this, but I bet almost to a person that people have a poor self-image of themselves. Every, I bet every one of you in this room has something about your body you wish was different. Maybe you wish you were smarter or you were as good-looking as your pastor or... <clears throat> Maybe you wish you were as good designing cars as he is, or um, now we Brandon prayed for Matt earlier, and I kind of felt like there's probably a lot of people here who are wondering, so which Matt had surgery? My son-in-law, Matt, Brittany's husband, um, had had been suffering from um, ulcerative colitis for 10 years. And in November, he had his large intestine removed. And they did what's called a J-pouch, again, medical technology. Um, and then on Friday, he went back in and they got rid of the colostomy bag and reconnected his small intestine with what he needs. And, and so um, we're just thanking the Lord. There, he's going to get discharged today, so we're very thankful for that. And, and so I kind of wanted to maybe clear that up a little bit. But this, this medical technology that, that we have... Um, it, it, is, it is amazing. Um, but here's the thing. 
uh, we need to remember that, that God created us. And, and I want to point to Moses. When God placed the call on Moses for him to go to Pharaoh and, and to tell Pharaoh to let my people go, um, Moses had a poor self-image. There were things about himself that he didn't like, that, that he thought disqualified him from, from ministry, actually. And I don't know if he's just looking for an excuse, which, which could be part of the deal. He just didn't want to go back to where he fled. Um, he was worried about that, but he felt inadequate to do what God was telling him to do. And in Exodus chapter 4, verse 10, we have his words. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. He's like, I'm not your guy. I am imperfect physically. I don't speak well. Maybe he thought slowly. Maybe he stuttered. I don't know what it was. But he thought that that disqualified him to do God's work or that reduced his value somehow. And that's just not true. I mean, what was God's response to him? In verses 11 and 12, the Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord, Yahweh, the great I am, now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. God created Moses just the way he wanted him to be. God fashions each person according to his wisdom. We're all born imperfect, but God's grace and his power is sufficient to enable us to do what he created us to do and, and, and to be. And as I mentioned, our medical technology has helped us in many ways when it comes to birthing healthy babies and even looking into the womb to see the miracle that, that God is creating. But I believe that also that increased technology has also given us a level of power that we are not supposed to have. It is putting us in places where we're having to make decisions that we are not supposed to make. And, and we just need to pray about that and struggle through those things. A, a level of knowledge that causes us to, to take life into our own hands. Which brings us to the fourth truth that we need to remember, and that's what God starts, man does not have the right to end. And, and this seems simple to me, Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. God values life. And of course he does, right? He created it. He made it. God values all life, even life in the womb. God values life no matter how weak it is, how broken it is, how scarred it is, how old it is, or how lost in its mission it is. And murder, assisted suicide, euthanasia, abortion, and everything in between is man deciding to end what God started. It is taking human life that was created to reflect God's glory, and we must stand against it. We must, in our own life and our own relationships and our own shortcomings, choose life. Exodus 21, 22 through 25, God gives this, this law. If people are fighting 
and hit a pregnant woman, and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands in the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. If there is serious injury to that unborn child, Exodus says, you are to take life for life. That is how God showed the value of the unborn in the Old Testament. Now, I want to be very clear here this morning. If you have had an abortion, if you have had an abortion, God's grace and forgiveness is available to you. Restoration is available to you. When Jesus came, he literally, he literally changed things. Think back to when the woman who was caught in adultery was brought before Jesus. What, what did they say? Uh, it's found in John chapter 8. If you would turn there, man, I was throwing lots of passages to Roy. And, um, so we're going to look this one up. John chapter 8. Turn there. John 8. John 8, 3 through 5. And, and if the scholars that that translated our English translations are willing to trust a later manuscript, which is, if you look in your notes in your Bible, you're going to see that. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that this morning, but you're going to see that. Some, some Bibles footnote it only. Some Bibles put a big uh, bar in there and say, hey, this, is, this little section here is from, uh, from an earlier, earlier, later manuscript, just to let us know, just to be... You know, full disclosure. But this was the situation. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said, and Jesus, obviously standing there with the group, must be teaching them or something. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were uttering the words that our accuser Satan whispers into our ears. She is not worthy because she has sinned. She did something wrong and she needs to die. And just to be fair to them, the law did say that. But what did Jesus do? What does Jesus think in this situation? How does he act? He he fulfilled the law on our behalf, we're told in Scripture. Because of his sacrifice, we receive mercy and grace and forgiveness. So how did Jesus respond? Verse 6. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Trying to get him. But I'm glad they are because it's a good question. It's good for us to see what he says about this. He bends down and he starts to write on the ground with his finger. Man, that'd make me mad. You ask him a question and he just looks like he's ignoring you. He just looks down and he's doing something in the dirt with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, they wouldn't relent. They kept questioning him, it says. He straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he stoops down and he writes on the ground. 
at this, and, and we see that they're all honest, because every one of them drops their stone and walks away. Until Jesus, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. If you have had an abortion, he can restore you. You can be restored. He can help you heal. And I know people in our church family who have gone through that healing, who have had abortions and late in their life have received the healing and the forgiveness and have accepted that. God, God abhors all sin, right? Not just abortion. God will forgive all of our sins if we turn to Jesus as our Savior. And once God has forgiven our sins, we're told in Scripture that they're gone. Romans 8, 1 through 3, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death for what the law was powerless to do. In that it was weakened by the sinful nature God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. God established the value of human life. Human life begins at conception. Imperfect people are God's children. What God starts, does not, a man does not have the right to end. And number five, God loves human life in the womb even though it is sinful. Psalms, Psalm 51, 1 through 5, David writes this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Sounds sort of like a sinner's prayer to me, actually. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That is what we call original sin a theological term, the fact that we inherit sin from our fathers. Sin entered the world through one man, Scripture tells us, Adam. We are all born, and even as David describes, conceived sinful. So the logical conclusion to that then is that even the unborn child stands before God as a sinner because he or she reflects the sinful nature of Adam. Everyone is born a sinner in need of a savior and God has provided a way out through Jesus Christ. But Pastor David, you're thinking, wait, 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 wait. If we are only saved by the name of Jesus, if it's in the name of Jesus, then how have I heard many, many, many times in my life 
that, that the unborn, that infants, that young children are in heaven if they've never uttered the name of Jesus? Or what about those who were born with a mental disability and never had the capacity to really think or reason or understand? Both are very good questions. And we should, in our system of theology, be asking hard questions. Now, I recently performed two funerals, one for an eight-month-old girl and the other for Cliff Wilhelm's brother, who was mentally disabled. And I want to read you some of the words that I said to those families, if I may, this morning. Now, I don't know at what level or degree Kurt's disabilities affected his ability to know right from wrong and recognize sin, um, for we all sin, and in the Bible, we don't find anywhere where it specifically says whether or not those with lifelong developmental disabilities go to heaven. There is never a conversation that, that, that we are privy to that God has given us in his word between Jesus and somebody who was, was in that way, who God created. We are never given an account but we do see many interactions with children, and there is biblical evidence that anyone who is not able to make a decision for salvation is covered by Christ's death. This is similar to how it is commonly believed that children are taken to heaven when they die until they reach a point in life in which they are able to make a decision for or against Jesus. It is often referred to as the age of accountability. At what age does a child get to where God holds them personally accountable for their sin? Now, there are lots of conversations and debates about this, I know. Now, I don't want to assume that Kurt wasn't able to understand his sin and trust Christ as a savior, but not knowing Kurt personally, I simply don't know. I, I didn't know him. Dale Baumgartner, I know Dale. And every time I see him, he says he loves Jesus and that he loves me. And Garrett is the same way in his life today. Now, Garrett wasn't born that way, but Garrett continues to have love for Jesus. So, so what then do we conclude if they're not able to make a decision for or against Christ? Now, I don't want to assume, again, that Kurt wasn't able to understand. I spoke with a special education teacher, and she said this, my students teach me every day to not discount their capabilities. So God will teach us that too, I think, over time as we value life no matter what that life is. It's been created by God. They have breath. He gave them breath. King David was a man after God's own heart. The Bible says that he was the apple of God's eye. And he blew it big time. And his infant son was very sick and he was praying that God would heal him, that God would spare his son. But God didn't do that. God didn't do that. And King David's response is an indication that children indeed go to heaven. 
And I believe that to be true. I believe that we can, in fact, have hope that the mentally disabled and the unborn and infants are in the presence of God. All who take their last breath are in the hands of a loving and just God. We can trust that truth. And sometimes when we don't know where someone is spiritually, that's, that's the hope that we have, is that they're in the hands of a loving and just God, and God will not do, he will not make a mistake. We can trust God to do the loving and just thing regarding them. And here's what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 12. On the seventh day, the child died. David got up from the ground after he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord, and he worshiped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. And his servants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and you wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and you eat. And David says this, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David could not bring his son back to life, but he knew that one day he would go to him. And I believe that David was recognizing that his son was indeed in the presence of God in heaven. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 14, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. David's sorrow passed and he had hope. Knowing the love, grace, and mercy of God, this would seem consistent with his character. Any person who is mentally disabled to the extent that he or she could not be aware of their sinful state and believe in Christ for salvation is in the same category as a child and it is not unreasonable to conclude that that person is saved by the grace and mercy of the same God who saves babies and small children. We do know that Jesus receives as his own all whom the Father has given to him and he will lose none of them along the way. Jesus said of these, and I give to them eternal life, and they shall never, ever perish, and not anyone shall pluck them out of my hand. We can take comfort in knowing that our God's plan is always perfect. He always does what is right and just, and his love and mercy are infinite and everlasting. So God established the value of human life. Human life begins at conception. Imperfect people are God's children. What God starts, man does not have the right to end. God loves human life in the womb, even though it is sinful. And number six, God wants everyone to live eternally with him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He's standing at the door of your heart right now. If you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, why not do that today? Why not do that in this moment? Has he not shown you over the last few weeks that he loves you and that you were created by him and that you bear his image? And he wants to take that scarred, a dirty, imperfect image and restore it? We can trust the Holy Spirit to empower our words. 
to believe and turn the control of our life over to Jesus. And that is something that you need to recognize that you can only do while you still have breath. Here's a verse from the book of the Bible we're going to start studying next week, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the heart of God. God's desire is for every man and woman to be saved and live eternally with him. His love for you is that strong. His love for all people is that strong. And let's all value all life just as God does. And, and there's several practical ways we can do that. We can be a part of the local right to life group here in Goshen County. Uh, we all should be praying for our nation in regards to all of those things. There are countries who are already deciding that, that people with mental disabilities would be better off dead and they're euthanizing them. It's happening in our world. We must not be silent in the face of those things. When you hear of some crazy government bill or whatever, let people know, pray against it. Financially support, as we do as a church, um, the Cheyenne Life Choice uh, Organization. You know, our baby bottle drive, our, they, they drive their, their little uh, bus around from town to town and show these young, unwed, pregnant women what this child looks like so that they can see its humanity and choose life. Pray for, hold, walk with someone who didn't choose life and is struggling with that decision. Help them see the forgiveness that's available through them for them in Jesus. Honor God by helping people see that all life has value because God gave it value. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you created us. Thank you for helping us see, and I pray that each one of us in this room and those who are listening and will someday listen, help us to not listen to the lies of the enemy that are in our world that, that wants us to not value human life, no matter what age that life is. Help us to continue to wrestle with what you teach us in your word. God, I pray that as we, we work through the, this main theme of 2 of Peter, uh, of being alert, recognizing the battle that's occurring in our world in many, in all areas. Lord, help us to celebrate life. Uh, those in our circles, those in our families, Father, there may be reconciliation that needs to happen, forgiveness that needs to happen. Give us the, the courage to surrender all of those things to you and to listen to 
the direction that you would have us go. Thank you that, that we're in a different year and it, it may seem like same old, same old, but you are the same Lord, sovereign God, creator of all things. Help us to, to worship you, to serve you, and to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.